0: The kingdom is spreading, O oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory, as waters that cover the sea.
1: Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent-makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded both Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles.' And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God." whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Our last study concluded Paul's speech to the Areopagus and saw the establishment of a congregation in Athens. Acts 18, verse 1 begins, After these things, Paul departed from Athens. Evidently, Luke concluded in the Spirit, that the other details of Paul's Athenian ministry were not important to the points he was making in Acts, but there is some information we gain from Paul's letters that will give us a fuller sense of what took place. Recall that when Paul was deposited in Athens by the brethren from Berea, he sent them back home with the message that Silas and Timothy should come to him with all speed, Acts 17 and verse 15. Within the Acts narrative, we have no indication that they ever fulfilled that instruction. But in First Thessalonians, which Paul writes during the period covered in this study, he mentions in 3 verses 1 and 2, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. It seems that after Paul's events recorded in Acts 17, 16-34, Silas and Timothy did, in fact, arrive. Silas is not mentioned by name, but note that Paul says we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy and the other who Paul is referring to here seems to be Silas, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Timothy was sent back to continue the work with the Thessalonian church, and Silas and Paul remained for a time working with the Athenians. Precisely when and why Paul left Athens is difficult to say. It could be that after the initial positive response, not many others were showing much interest, so Paul moved on leaving the infant congregation in the care of Silas, and went to Corinth, again, says Acts 18, verse 1. As Athens was the intellectual capital of Greece, Corinth was the business capital, and properly speaking, it was the political capital of the region of Achaia. It was located on the Nera Isthmus, about four miles wide, that connected Achaia and the Peloponnese and it controlled the two seaports of Lacaem in the north and Cantria in the south, where ships would dock to have their goods transported the short journey over land rather than trying to sail around the southern Peloponnese. This meant that there was a great deal of commercial traffic through the city, and, as is usually the case in large cities of that nature, there was extraordinary opportunity there to indulge in immoral vices. Long before Paul visited, the lewdness of the city caused the word Corinthian to become a euphemism for a fornicator. Some point out that Corinth's reputation had improved by the first century AD, but this was evidently only relatively speaking. Strabo, who died in AD 23, reported that the temple of Aphrodite alone had over 1,000 prostitutes, And we should note that was simply the institutionalized prostitution associated with the pagan religion practiced there. By the thinking of many modern Christians, Corinth would not have been the sort of place to try to start a congregation. It is often compared to San Francisco and Las Vegas, which in turn are often compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. And believers are called by some religious teachers to flee those cities for more spiritually oriented populations in the Bible Belt. This is strange to me since Jesus told the Jewish populace of Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum that if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what they saw Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented and been spared their destruction and further told some of the religious leaders that prostitutes would enter the kingdom before them Matthew 11:21 through 24 and 21:31 I think the disconnect is that Paul understood with Jesus that the gospel of pardon for sins is more precious to those who know they are lost than to those who think they are not. And he further believed in the great power of the gospel preached to inspire faithfulness and achieve victory for the kingdom of Christ. It is good that Paul felt this way because his ministry here resulted in one of the greatest congregations of the ancient world. When Paul first reached the city... It appears that his resources were exhausted, or at least low enough that he knew he could not survive long without some source of income. This was not the first time he had been alone in a new city, but it was, it seems, the first time where he had been this vulnerable. He described his circumstances on this occasion in his first letter to the Corinthian church by saying, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 3. All that we know of Paul leads us to the conclusion that he must have spent a great deal of time in prayer over this matter. And by the providence of God, Luke says rather nonchalantly in verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that is, for those who may not realize, Emperor Claudius, the Roman Caesar, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Since nothing is said about their conversion, the likelihood is that these two were already Christians when Paul met them. This likelihood is increased when we consider the nature of Claudius's pogrom, which resulted in their expulsion from Rome and brought them to Corinth. This situation is discussed in the Roman historian Suetonius' work on the life of Claudius, and he informs that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. Now, the name Crestus is widely believed by historians to be a perversion in spelling of the word Christ. If this is true, the situation was that some Jews had become the center of controversies in Rome over the matter of whether or not their Messiah had come. Those who were accused of being the troublemakers, evidently at least a portion of the Christian population, were expelled. This is not so surprising and demonstrates that the experience of Paul was not uniquely connected with his personality, but was the common plight of Christians across the world. Why Aquila and Priscilla had chosen to settle in Corinth is difficult to say. It is possible that, like Paul, they were carried here by a missionary spirit. But when Paul learned of them, however this happened, Luke says he came to them. That is, he found where they were lodging in the city and together with them began his ministry there. It would be difficult to imagine any two people better suited to establish a new work around. As we will find in the ensuing narratives, they were as capable of bringing others to Christ as the apostles were. Verse 3, So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. We learned early on that Paul was from a city called Tarsus in the region of Cilicia. This area was in the southeast of modern-day Turkey. In that region, there was a famous and valuable cloth spun from goat hair that was often used to make tents, so it is not at all surprising that this was the trade Paul was schooled in. That he had a trade skill is also not surprising considering the Jewish attitude toward work. Jewish traditional writings express that no one should be instructed as a teacher of God's law unless he is also capable of physical labor. Yet this incident raises questions and contributes to the overall biblical picture of the nature of the Christian ministry. For centuries there have been some Christians who deny that ministers of the gospel should receive financial compensation for their work. Some believe that there is no official ministry in the church at all due to the biblical teaching of the priesthood of all believers. This is unacceptable because the inference runs contrary to the consistent plain picture of the primitive church in which over and again persons were appointed to official positions with special tasks based on clear and established qualifications. Others simply object to the idea of ministers receiving a salary— And it is true that examining cases like Paul's missionary journeys, there does not seem to be any consistent income that was guaranteed to him by any church. We inferred that Antioch supported at least part of his first missionary journey, and it's possible that the same thing was true of the second journey. However, in that day, monies were only available in metal coinage, and there was only so much a person could keep on his person. Eventually, that would have run out. We know that the congregations Paul established, like Philippi, would take up the burden of Paul's support as soon as they were able. We read about that in Philippians 4 verses 15 through 16. And it is possible, in fact likely, that other churches did the same. But Paul expressly states that he took nothing from the congregation at Corinth, but rather opted to continue the practice he started here, of earning his own wages until he was able to receive support from other churches. In our final analysis, it seems most likely that Paul's method of being supported in sizable gifts that lasted him a period of time was probably more due to the circumstances in which he lived, a time before banks, electronic transfer of funds, or even lightweight paper money, than to some sort of a divine pattern. There is something like a salary described as an appropriate thing for a man who dedicates himself fully to the service of a particular congregation in 1 Timothy five seventeen through 18 this from the pen of Paul himself. And evidently, the right of wages for labor is granted by God to all who preach the gospel, again according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-14. However, there is liberty in how a man receives his living. He can receive from one church as well as another, or he can forego receiving funds from the churches and work for his own. Though, as we see here, this means he will have less time and opportunity to devote to the preaching of the gospel. And as no man can effectively serve two masters, this is not the preferred situation. All the same, sometimes it's best, in a given circumstance, and when Paul writes to the church at Corinth we see some of the issues that might have led him to believe that in this community and working with these people, he should avoid financial dependence on them. Verse 4 informs that indeed this arrangement limited Paul's ministry to the Sabbath days, but he did all that he could, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. There are a few things to mention here. First, Luke reports that after some time Silas and Timothy arrived. He says that they both came from Macedonia. Yet, in our last consideration, we saw evidence that Silas had been left in Athens. Probably he traveled back to Thessalonica after a little while to fetch Timothy and bring him along to Corinth when it was determined that the works in those cities allowed for that. Next, the New King James Version says that upon their arrival, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. The older manuscripts read, as in the New American Standard Version, When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. The alternative reading is probably a variation of the same idea with the phrase compelled by his spirit, that is, Paul's own spirit or his heart, not the Holy Spirit as suggested in the New King James Version, to give himself over more fully to the work than he had previously been doing. That's the meaning regardless. Up to this point, Paul was spending his weeks in the workshop and the Sabbaths in the synagogue, but now he devoted himself completely to the word. It seems that the more enthusiastic labor included a more profound proclamation of the truth concerning Jesus and his reign, and what had been previously tolerated by the Jews there began to disturb them so as to stir up the familiar controversy. Verse 6 But when they had opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. This time Paul responded with a more hasty personal withdrawal than in many of his past works. That is, he was not so much driven out as he removed himself. Although there is some precedent here for his response to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. This time... Paul mimicked the ancient prophets with a theatrical display of their rejection for their unbelief. Shaking his garments would indicate that he did not even want their dust to cling to him, lest he be somehow implicated as guilty by association with them when God's judgment came. His words, "'Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean,' hearken back to the prophetic imagery such as we find in Ezekiel 33, verses 4 through 5. The prophets were like watchmen on the walls of a city. It was their duty to announce impending trouble, though that was a hard message that might disturb the people and no one would be glad to hear it. Yet if the watchman was silent, he would be responsible for the deaths of the people he failed to warn. Paul is disgusted that the Jews would treat the message of their Messiah as bad news and choose God's judgment over his salvation, but he stressed that he would have no guilt when their destruction came. He was disassociated from them, and his conscience in regard to them was clean. There is a sense in which the work of gospel preachers is to proclaim the good news even to those who reject it, so that when the judgment comes against them, God's mercy will be accentuated to his glory by their stubborn refusal. It is a hard and painful task, but it is necessary because of the hardness of some sinners against the truth. As before, this was not an absolute rejection of the Jews, simply the Jewish community in Corinth that had shown itself to be controlled and characterized by a rebellious spirit. Verse 7 says, And he departed from there, and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. The phrase, one who worshipped God, means that this man was a Gentile like Cornelius, one who feared Yahweh and respected his authority, but who had not become Jewish, and therefore was excluded from the fellowship of the Jews in that area. His name, according to several older manuscripts, was Titius Justus, or in one manuscript, Titus Justus. In modern American culture, people generally have three names, a first and a middle, which are often unique and distinguish the individual from others within his or her family, and a last name, which is a family name shared by all within the household. In Roman culture, a person commonly had three or four names. The pre corresponded to our first name and was the distinguishing moniker for an individual. The nomen was somewhat correspondent to our last name. It was a family name carried by all within a group who shared common male ancestors. The Cognomen was a sort of nickname that was often given to a branch of a family. And finally, the Agnomen was an adopted name, or we might say an individual nickname, that was given to reflect a personal achievement or characteristic. Many times people would take up an Agnomen to mark a change in religious devotion. For a polytheist, he might add an honorific name reflecting one of the new gods he had begun to reverence. For a Christian or a Jew, he might change his name when he converted to reflect his new identity as a follower of the true God. Understanding all of this can be helpful as Bible readers when we wonder why people are spoken of with such discontinuity throughout the Scripture. Sometimes ill-informed critics will accuse the Bible of contradictions when it calls individuals by several different names, but the problem there is a weakness in understanding on the part of the critic, not the Scripture. This man should not be confused with the Titus who Paul and Barnabas had taken with them to Jerusalem years earlier, or who became an evangelist, but some scholars do suggest that he should be identified with Gaius, who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1. fourteen as one of the first converts in Corinth and praised for his hospitality in hosting the church, Romans 16.23. If Justice is Gaius, it is possible that the latter name was an agnomen taken on by him when he was baptized. It is striking that the new congregation of Christ was formed in a house that was next door to the synagogue. This would make the congregation a continual, visible witness against the Jews who rejected the Messiah. But it would also serve as to beckon those who might potentially soften and open to the messianic message in time, the body of Christ was only a step away. If this was the motivation, it seems to have worked. Verse eight says, "Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household." Although Luke does not mention it, Paul informs in 1 Corinthians 1:14 that he baptized Crispus. This man is called the ruler of the synagogue, singular. But in the past, we've seen evidence that there was a plurality of rulers or elders in each synagogue, as in Acts 13 and verse 15. It is possible that one who would preside over the assembly was called the ruler. But it is also possible that in this case, he is called the ruler not to imply that there was only one, but simply to identify that he was one. The point being that while many Jews in Corinth rejected the Messiah, some did not, and among those who accepted him was the respected and knowledgeable teacher, Crispus. Later, Paul would write to the Corinthian church that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called by the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1.26. This is not because God does not want them, but because many of them do not want God. Yet not many does not mean not any. What must it have meant for the synagogue to see one of their respected leaders, perhaps the most respected, walk away from his title and position and follow the lowly carpenter of Nazareth and call him Lord? It's interesting that throughout Acts Luke has mentioned a few cases of household conversions, but this is the first one recorded of a Jewish family. With this foundation, the church began to grow steadily and continuously. Verse 8 continues, And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. This is, as we know from past studies, a perfect presentation of how one becomes a Christian. Hearing the preaching of the gospel of Christ, one believes, that is, one accepts its truth, trusts in its power, and turns his or her heart to Jesus in loyalty, and is baptized, immersed in water for the remission of sins. Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16:16. 16, 16. This historical record of how the church was established in Corinth is important for the interpretation of the Corinthian epistles. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul confronts a crisis that developed in the church there, as certain people began to boast and promote themselves based on who administered their baptism. To this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 13-17, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Many times these words are abused to downplay the importance of baptism and especially to deny that it has anything to do with a person's salvation. Of course, To deny the connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins requires one to ignore a whole host of scripture. But to claim that Paul is severing baptism and conversion to Christ in his words to the Corinthians is especially absurd because Luke informs, and most likely from Paul's own testimony, that no one became a Christian in that city except by the normal procedure of hearing, believing, and being baptized— Paul's words to Corinth were not to sever the relationship between baptism and salvation, but to put baptism and preaching and preachers in the proper place so that Christ would receive all the glory and honor and praise. This passage is really not about baptism, it's about arrogance and boasting. And Paul does not say, I thank God that most of you were not baptized. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Now Corinth was not an easy place to plant a colony of heaven. It was filled with sensuality and immorality. It was dominated by a proud and pretentious spirit. In many respects, it was a stronghold of Satan. But the gospel is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, says 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. Paul, in his ministry here, teaches us how to allow the might of God to have its perfect work. He debases and deprives himself so that Christ's strength may be made perfect in his weakness. And behold, the stronghold crumbles. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week.
0: From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, Come over and help us to cry. The kingdom is spreading, Oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. THE EARTH SHALL BE FULL OF HIS KNOWLEDGE AND GLORY AS WATERS THAT COVER THE SEA WITH PRAISING AND SINGING AND jubilant RINGING THEIR ARMS OF REBELLION CAST DOWN AT LAST EVERY NATION THE LORD OF SALVATION WITH GLORY THEIR EFFORT SHALL CROWN the kingdom is spreading, O oh tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.